Design Matters is on summer break, but we thought it was a good time to repost some of our favorite episodes. This one was originally posted in November of 2015. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Sue Matthews-Hale about her efforts to bring more attention to female designers. So it's not about celebrating them as women, but just more awareness. There are women out there kicking ass, and people just aren't aware. Here's Debbie Millman. The design world is full of women, yet women designers only rarely make it into the top jobs. The glass ceiling is not as low as it once was, but it's still up there. Sue Matthews-Hale is in the middle of her term as the president of AIGA, where she has made it her mission to raise the profile of women in the design industry. Her own career makes her something of a role model. She started at Pentagram and went on to become a senior partner at Lippincott, where she has helped develop brand identities for companies including eBay, Walmart, and Hyatt. She's here today to talk about her life and career as well as the place of women in design. Welcome, Sue Matthews-Hale. Thanks, Debbie. Happy to be here. Sue, I've been doing Design Matters interviews now for 10 years. I've learned all sorts of crafty ways to do research on people, to find the hidden nuggets of their early lives, and I'm really proud of my ability to do so. However, with you, I hit a roadblock. Beyond where you went to college and the fact that you had an interest in design as far back as you could remember, which we'll talk about shortly, I could not find a morsel on your childhood. And I had to do something that I haven't had to do in a long time, maybe ever. I had to sheepishly write you and ask you where you grew up. You stated, I was left on the street in Korea when I was a baby and adopted by an Irish-American family just under the age of two. I grew up upstate in Trumansburg, New York, a small town of around 1,100 people. I was the only Asian person in my graduating class. So would you mind if we talk about this a little bit? Sure. Do you have any recollection of being left on the street? I don't. I, I really just have the information that my parents told me, and I came with this very thick binder of all the information they had collected on me before the age of two, which is very wow. weird. How did they How did they have all of that? I guess being in the orphanage, they had to, in the hopes that somebody would adopt me, that they had to collect information so that they could tell potential families about me my disposition, my personality, all of that kind of stuff. And it's amazing when I look back at it. Actually, a lot of things are shockingly still true and For example, just weird. Like what? Like what? It's said that I like to be around adults more than kids. And I tend to, I, when I look and I think about all my relationships and experiences, I've always sort of hung out and had friends that were a lot older than me. I felt more comfortable it also said that um, I was very independent. It also said I was 
a bit bossy. <laughs> I don't know how you can be bossy before the age of two. But, oh, um, I, I can tell you. You know, I like to think of that as not being so much bossy. But even back then, I think I wanted to be self-sufficient. And so, yeah, some of those things were just very surprising that they had written those things about me. So you, you were just age. left on the street with this big book of details about well, you. Well, I say, well, left on the street, the big book of details came after they found me. So what I was told was that I was left on the street, I think like in a box or something, and that a policeman found me and brought me to this orphanage, which then I was, I think, at a hospital for a little while. And then I had a foster family that looked after me for a little while until... I was adopted through this agency called Holt International. I don't remember any of it. I don't remember coming. There's pictures of me. I flew over from Korea on my own with someone from Holt Agency then. There's pictures of them handing me over to my parents. I flew into JFK. They picked me up and then turned around and drove back home, which is upstate New York at the time in Syracuse. How does a living, breathing little girl recover from something like this? I've always had the opposite feeling about it. People, whenever they hear about it, they usually say to me, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry, or it must have been so hard. And I feel like I've lived a very lucky and fortunate life. It doesn't feel sad or feel like, how did I recover or survive? I just did. It wasn't something I thought about or I thought, like, how am I going to get over this and survive? I just lived my life. Um, I had an incredibly supportive, loving family. I actually half the time forgot about the fact that I was adopted. It was sort of weird. Like, I remember one time when I was older, my mother calling me and saying, oh, I found a lump in my breast and, you know, you should really go. It runs in the family. I'm like, "Uh, mom, I'm (laughs) adopted. So (laughs) she, of course, knew that, but it was, we just forgot about it. I never felt like they weren't my parents. Even when I was really pissed at them, I was never thought like, oh, I have the option of leaving and finding my real parents. Or It just always felt natural and real. And, you know, the only time I really ever noticed it was when other people called it out. Like, what I was remember, it like in school? You said that you were the only Asian in yeah, your graduating Yeah, I remember class. it just never really being too much of an issue. Once in a while, you'd have some kid that would say to you, like, oh, hey, chink, go back home or something crazy like that. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? My home, I live in Truinsburg. Like, it's just sort of didn't make sense to me. It never was just a thing for me that felt like it was a challenge I had to get over. It just felt like it was something that was a part of me. So you're absolutely gorgeous. You're likely the best-dressed woman I've ever met. (laughs) You've had the most extraordinary career both as a designer and a leader. And, Sue, before I knew about your history, I was worried about this interview. I was thinking, my God, she's so perfect. She's had this extraordinary trajectory. Her life seems like just one great piece of good fortune after another. (laughs) I was worried we wouldn't have enough to talk about. And I I, I really, when your email came, I felt so stupid. I felt like, what assumptions we have about who people are just based on what we think they are— And I felt so shameful in that moment um, because I I wonder how often we all do that or how often I do it and just felt so dumb. (laughs) Well, you shouldn't feel dumb. It's it's human. I mean, I know I, I do the same thing. And it is something that I would say, 
once they found out find out that piece of me that that's the thing that um, defines you, know, you or defines me or that I've had you know how did I overcome that and I think the thing that I've had a harder time with in life is probably what you were saying as far as people assuming things about me is because of the way I dress or because of the way I look or because I remember when I went to school, my mother telling me I was on like a payphone in the hall in my all-girls dorm, and I was devastated because I went to the dining room, and I actually have never been around Asians, like that many Asians, <laughs> before Like I came to college. I went to FIT in the city, and um, suddenly I was surrounded by all these Korean girls at lunch, and they're all sitting around me, and one of the girls was from my floor and, um, on the, in the dorm, and she said, Sue's Korean, and everyone just stopped eating. Everyone looked at me, and they're like, you are? And I was like, yeah. And so then they all started telling me, no, you're not. And I was like, what are you talking about? They were like, you're not Korean. You don't dress like, you don't look, you don't act like it. You don't eat Korean. You hang out with this Caucasian woman all the time. We saw your boyfriend. He's white. You're not Korean. Wow. And it's funny because the amount of times people have told me that, it's crazy. You're not Korean. So my mom had told me when I was talking to her on the payphone, she said, you know, you're always going to have challenges in life because people are going to look at you and assume one thing. She would say, also, you know, you're also a beautiful girl. And I never saw myself that way. I always saw no? like kids, like Ugh. you see yourself as looking different from everyone else. And you think, I'm like not attractive at all. People always thought, oh, she's really stuck up. She doesn't talk to people. She's, And it's because I'm actually incredibly shy. And people always misinterpret that about me because it takes a while for me to get to know people. So I've had that through my entire life. Uh, I can name every time I've joined a club or started a job or got into a new circle of friends that I've always had to have that conversation of, I thought you were this, but you're actually not. And it's just so funny that I'm still at this stage of my life. I still hear that. Well, let's talk a little bit about <laughs> what you were like when you were a kid and how you grew okay. up. As I mentioned in my introduction, I understand that as far back as you can remember, you had an interest in design, even though you didn't know what design was. Yeah. And I read that you helped your mom design the family Christmas cards and that you created your own coloring books. What kind of coloring books? What kind of cards? Talk about what you made. I just always, I liked to draw. I never liked the coloring books that were out there, so I would create my own stories. I think a lot of kids do that, but I made my own paper dolls. I wanted to be a fashion designer, actually, when I was younger, but I was told by my guidance counselor that trying to become a fashion designer was like trying to become a rock star. Um, so uh, quickly, let's said. wait. We, we have this time. Your guidance counselor yes, told you that. Yes. So your guidance counselor was trying to convince you not to do something that you wanted to do. Aren't they there to help foster your interests know, and your future? Yes. Wow. So, um, which was interesting because then he said, "You know, you should be a fine artist." And I thought, now I look <laughs> back at it and I think. Well, that's kind of crazy. Like, <laughs> oh, don't be a fashion designer, but being a fine artist would be so much easier. Right. Um, so if you started FIT studying fine art, you graduated with a degree in advertising. When did you make that transition? Well, I actually didn't start at FIT. I started, um, so I wanted to come to New York. And, of course, my guidance counselor said that, you know, people from Trumansburg don't 
go to New York City and make it. I hope um, he knows what you're doing right now. <laughs> I know. I always, I always wonder and think, like, oh, it would be so great to, like, tell him that I— Give me his address. I'll let him know. <laughs> I don't even remember his name. But he had convinced, I think, my parents, and I think to some extent my parents also sort of believe that, too, in a way, because we're, you know, a small town and— and they thought it would just be safer. I think, you know, like any parent thinking about your child going off to the big city when we grew up in upstate New York in a small farm town. So everyone thought the best thing for me would be go to a school that's close to the city but not in the city. And because um, we had three of us, there's four of us, um, I have three siblings, my father said, you know, putting four people to school, one of the criteria is we had to go to a state school so if I could find a state school, maybe close to New York, where I could, they always say, you know, you could take the train or the bus into New York, which never happens. I mean, even <laughs> when you live in Brooklyn, sometimes you barely get into Manhattan. So being an hour and a half away. So I went to SUNY New Paltz and studying fine arts there, and it was a disaster. I was not nearly as good as all the other kids there. And then I thought I made a mistake. I thought, oh, I'm not good in what I thought I was good at. But then I'd realized that it just was, I was never meant to really be an artist. I'm probably one of the few graphic designers that's not a disgruntled artist or wish I was <laughs> or I'm doing it on the side. Um, I realized when I was there, I'd rather be drawing with a pen. I'd rather do things that were more graphic. And at the time, I didn't know what that meant. And then I did my own research and I found FIT and they had an advertising program. And I started and studied advertising design and then kind of funny enough got into graphic design because after two years you get your associate's degree in the advertising then you have to decide if you want to continue on with advertising or moving to graphic design and I remember the chair of the department coming in and saying hey we have too many people signed up to go into the advertising program we need some of you to move to graphic design Oh, wow. And I was like well what a circuitous route. Yeah and I was like well what's graphic design? So they started talking about all the classes that were more geared towards graphic design. So they're like, well, it's the type classes. It's the cl So all the classes that I loved were the graphic design. All the classes I hated, they were like, and then the advertising stuff's more of the, you know, the copywriting class, the tagline class, the marker rendering with it. And I was like, oh, those are all the classes I really hate. So I raised my hand and said, I'll move to graphic design. And um, the rest was sort of history. From my research, from what I can tell, your first job out of college was at Pentagram. Is that correct? It is. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, again, I feel like I've just had a very lucky life and I've just sort of been in the right place at the right time. And, you know, I said that once to my uncle and my uncle said, yes, maybe that's true, but a lot of people can have luck, but then they don't know what to do with it. Absolutely. So and a lot that of people always with, made me A lot of people with better. too much luck end up in rehab. <laughs> yes. Um, so how that happened was we had to do an internship program at FIT, and my teacher at the time, Joan Lombardi, had said to me, hey, there's an internship position open at Pentagram. And I said, why are you telling me this? And she said, because I think you should go apply. And I, th I said, you're crazy. I was like, I will never get in there. And she said, no, you should really go. I really think that you can um, can do it. You have a great portfolio. You should go. And so I went and interviewed. And at the time, I interviewed for Michael Beirut's team. And a woman who I'm now very good friends with, 
Asia Peltova. At the time, her name was Esther Burdavsky, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, she interviewed me, and she accepted me on the spot. Wow. Um, and it was funny because I had had an interview at another firm, and the woman was not very nice to me in the interview. And I got home for that day, and she called me, and she said, um, you know, look, we normally only take people from RISD, but we're going to make an exception for you in this case, and we'd like you to start on Monday. We don't normally take people from FIT. And I said, oh, you know, thank you so much. I would. That's such great news. I would love to take, but I actually, I got accepted someplace else that I'm going to go. <laughs> and I knew she was going to ask me, but I didn't want to say it. I wanted her to ask me. So she says, well, can I ask where? And I said, oh, um, Pentagram. And um, <laughs> that little worldwide yes, yeah. renowned so she, um, legendary firm. It was a very curt ending and oh well good luck and sort of hung up on me. But um, <laughs> so that's how I got in there and then um, they were always really busy. My internship was coming to an end and Michael Beirut had said to me, Hey, Michael Garricky's team is really busy and they're looking for freelancers, you know, would you want to freelance over there? And I was like, of course I would. I was still in school at the time. And so I freelanced for a couple days a week when I could um, for his team. I graduated. I went home. I got married the first time um, <laughs> and um, came back. They called me and said, hey, we have another project come in. And I did. And 10 years later, I was still there. So... And did you work for Michael Beirut and Michael Garricky only, or did you work for any of the other partners? I worked solely for Michael Garricky at that point for the 10 years. I don't know if they still—I think they still do it this way, but pretty much like once you were on a team, that was your team. Right. All the other teams had these amazing senior designers, these women. So Asia was Michael Beirut's, and this woman, Lisa Mazur, who's also now one of my best friends, was Paula's, and um, Woody had this, well, Woody had a male, but he, there was this other woman, a vet, who um, was a senior designer, and I just was like, someday I'm going to be these women. The woman um, that was his senior designer at the time, Sharon Harrell, she ended up going back home to Israel, and um, I just sort of moved into that position. It was all sort of crazy. It was a really hard 10 years. I worked like crazy. I got divorced. I missed friends' weddings. I was probably working like 90 hours a week wow. for a good decade. <laughs> yes, decade. And um, it was hard, but it was fun. And a lot of it was because I put it on myself. Like I would stay late to work on things and I wasn't asked to do it. I would, you know, work on stuff until I knew how to do it or learned or but I remember thinking you know at the time like I can't wait to the day when I feel like I know what I'm doing because I felt like for a really long time I had no idea what I was doing I was just constantly hoping that nobody would notice that I didn't really know what I was doing but I was somehow pulling it off um, so when did that day arrive <laughs> I don't think it's still has arrived <laughs> yet um but there are days where I sometimes feel like, hey, I've, I, I'm pretty good at I'm this. pretty good at this, yeah. yeah. Um, so ultimately you became an associate partner at Pentagram. What made you decide to leave? 
it got to the point where it just felt like after a while I just wasn't growing anymore. A lot of people that work there and many of my friends that work there, they would work there for a few years and then they would go off and they would do their own thing. And that was sort of the norm. Like, you know, you worked there, you'd get a lot of experience, you'd go off and you'd start your own thing and you'd, and almost all my friends ended up doing that. And I was going to do that too. So I, it took me a longer, but I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do that now too. And so when I left to do that, you know, back then headhunters were really big. So I couldn't believe the amount of phone calls that started pouring in when people heard I was leaving. And this headhunter said to me, um, all these people want to talk to you. You should at least speak to them. And I thought, well, I guess what do I have to lose because I'm not really interested in doing it. So it would maybe just give me some connections. And I hadn't interviewed at all for 10 years. And I thought, oh, I could, you know, just get that experience of talking with clients and interviewing would be kind of maybe similar. And I took interviews at two um, places and one was Lippincott and it was for a partner position. And that was 12 years ago? That was 12 years ago, yes. <laughs> so I never started my own business. Actually ended up going straight there. And yeah, now it's been another 12 years there. You went on to a company that in some ways is similar and in some ways very, very different. Can you talk a little bit about that transition? What was the most interesting difference and the most challenging? Yeah, the main difference is that um, at Lippincott, the partners aren't all designers. So I have partners who they went, you know, to Wharton and Penn, they've got MBAs and they have research or marketing backgrounds and business backgrounds. And so it's not solely just um, a practice led by design. So that was very different for me to sort of be in that world of not having people necessarily think the way that I thought. The first day I was terrified you know, after being at Pentagram for 10 years. And, you know, interestingly, Connie Birdsall, who's a senior partner and um, the global creative director there at Lippincott, you know, she came up to me and she gave me a big hug. And she said, I can't imagine what it must feel like to walk in here after being at Pentagram for 10 years and someplace for 10 years. It was just so great. And I remember, so good. And I remember just the first few days, um, I felt like I was on The Apprentice because it's, the background for Lippincott is a management consulting, and we're owned by Marsh McLennan, and, like, it's more corporate. And the first day, we're sitting around the table, this big, long marble table with um, all the other partners, and the CEO was sitting at the end of the table, and he was, like, going around the room, asking everybody, like, what have you done? What new business have you brought in? And I was like, oh, my God, when he gets to I'm just like, it's going to be like Donald Trump when he's like, you're fired, you know? <laughs> so I was terrified. And I also just didn't know the lingo. It was like the first meeting I was in. It was like a Citibank meeting, and everybody was talking about, you know, Harvey balls and straw man <laughs> approaches and all of these things that I was just like, I have no idea what anyone is talking about right now. So I just, I spent like the first probably six months just writing down everything people said and then going and asking other people, what does it mean to put things in buckets? Or what is it like, <laughs> you know, things like that. That's and awesome. um, um, But I would just, you know, try to do it in a very sneaky way that didn't make it look like, you know, I didn't know what I was doing and I shouldn't be there. And Well, you became a, a senior <laughs> partner within two years, which is pretty speedy. Yeah, it was pretty fast. And um, 
I remember my mom even saying to me, you know, at the time, she's like, you have more confidence in your one little pinky than I do in my entire body. She's like, I can't believe you told them that you should be a senior partner. And I was like, well, mom, men do it all the time. They walk in there and they say, you know, I should be this. And I think women tend to sit back and wait for someone like you're going to work really hard and And somebody's going to notice notice, and then you're going to succeed. And I mentor both men and women this way, my designers, that it's like, Obviously, people are going to want to help you succeed, and but at the end of the day, it's really up to you, because people are busy and they're not think they're thinking about you know their own careers and how to t- drive their own paths. And yeah, I just I sort of went for it. <laughs> you are also currently now the president of AIGA, the largest professional design association in the world. You are only the fifth female president in the organization's 100-plus-year history. Last year, you created a postcard for AIGA that got quite a lot of attention. It was titled, Move Over Mad Men, (laughs) and it listed the names of more than 100 great women designers and leaders in our industry. What made you decide to do that? I was at a presentation, and the presenter was talking about the history of design and the influencers and who has really influenced our industry over the years. And they had this um, 12-up page collage of all the people who have really kind of driven our industry and, and have had the most impact. And every single person, the image was a man. And I was sort of looking around the room and I thought, it's weird. Does anybody else feel this is weird that were they all it's white all, men as well? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, so a collage of all white men. And I just looked at that. I just thought, wow, that's... And it really bothered me. And so I went up after the presentation and I said, you know, to the presenter, I was like, that was a you know, really great presentation, very inspiring, because a lot of the rest of the, the meat of the presentation was great. I said, I just have one small piece of feedback. I said, you know, on that one slide that you have with all the people who have been, you know, the major influencers in our industry over the, could you maybe next time try to find maybe one woman to put into that collage? Just sort of being sarcastic about it a little bit. And I thought he was going to say, oh, you're right, that's a great point. But he actually said to me, well, could you send me a list of who that might be? And I just was sort of (laughs) shocked, like, oh, you need a list from me because you, you don't even know? Or... So my response, I said, sure, I'll send you a list. And so I sent back this postcard, which was literally a list of over, you know, 150 women in like six-point type feature <laughs> condensed, like the tightest I could possibly track so I could get more names. It was just a wall and sea of names in this just pattern of all the same size all the way down till the last piece of type that said, move over, Mad Men. Were you surprised by the reaction? Yeah, I was surprised. I, you know, I um, went a bit viral. (laughs) (laughs) It did. And of course, I, you know, I saw negative comments from men who, you know, said like, oh, the fact that you had to say move over mad men, like, you know, critiquing just even, you know, Mm -hmm. so I was like, oh, thank you. You know, thanks for missing the whole point and still continuing (laughs) to critique me and tell me how I could have been better. 
So, yeah. Keep it in mind. I'll keep it in mind. Thank you. So, yeah. You also founded the first ever AIGA Women's Leadership Initiative. Um, And while the initiative focuses on women in design, I know that you're fundamentally against creating a poor us, poor women dialogue or a man-hating club or anything like that. And I understand that the chief mission of the initiative is to encourage and celebrate women's achievements in design as well as to cultivate awareness of gender-related issues and help designers connect with others both in the industry and beyond. What kinds of efforts and effects are you having? Yeah, it's been very interesting because it's been a topic that has been way more controversial than I thought it would be. Um, How come? I sort of expected that men would push back on it, but I never expected that women would push back on it. And I've gotten a lot of by women I admire and respect and um, value their opinions, too. Um, It's less about what we are standing for and probably more of the approach to it. So I think some women feel that we shouldn't be doing things like this because we're putting ourselves, you know, even more into sort of a bucket that, like, as opposed to just going out there and being a woman and being strong and why do we have to be labeled a woman president or the fifth female sure. woman. And yep. and I agree. Like, I've never wanted to ever be called out as, just like I hated when people would say, oh, you're very pretty for an Asian woman. Yeah, no, I would no, say, no you're, like, you're absolutely right. And so yeah. I've never liked that. I mean, I've dealt with that from, you know, my background, from my ethnicity and just being a woman. I, I mean, I've always been in sort of a man's world because I grew up playing sports as well. And so I would be like the only woman at basketball camp and, you know, the coach would be like, you're going to let a woman beat you. And my mother and my aunt are huge feminists. Um, My aunt works for the Susan B. Anthony house. And I used to get presents as a kid that would always say things like anything boys can do, girls can do better. And, you know, but we did a survey to really find out. We didn't just go out because like, Sue Matthews thought this would be something that I should do um, and I'm interested in. We went out and we asked the membership if they would be interested in it. And they said yes. And we really listened to what were the kinds of things that they would be interested in. And so the three things that you talked about, one would, is, was celebrating you know, women. We felt that you know, just that postcard loan that people aren't even aware of. You ask like for speakers and people will say like, oh, we need some speakers. And I'll say, oh, can anyone think of any women speakers? Like, even women can't think of other women. Like, it's the same two or three women that come up time after time because people just don't know and we're not celebrating women enough. So it's not about celebrating them as women, but just more awareness of there are women out there kicking ass and people just aren't aware. The cultivating part, we heard from a lot of women, too, that, you know, women just feel like there are some things that, you know, in order to succeed in leadership positions that maybe they could use some help on, whether it's negotiating skills or presentation skills. And that's, again, that's not something that is just a female thing by any means, but those are just some of the things that we heard from women that they would be interested in training and things around that. So we've been doing some webinars and things around negotiating, um, presenting, things like that. And then the connecting part is huge. We heard a lot from other women that because there are so few women in leadership positions, it's really hard to find mentors, which I think is hugely important. So people were really looking for when 
you know, we do social gatherings and things like that. Everyone says, oh, why would you do that? It's just what you think that women should only socialize with women. And it's not about that. It's about connecting them with other women who they can look up to, they can be role models, they can ask questions, how did, what kinds of challenges did they face? And, and it's interesting because every time I'm starting to feel sort of self-doubt about I should be doing this, I'll go speak on a panel and women will just come up to me afterwards and just be like, thank you so much for talking about this, for being here, because I thought I was the only one that was feeling this way. So the last thing I want to ask you about is a gender-related issue that I know you're really passionate about, the balancing act between career and family. So you're a senior partner at one of the major brand consultancies in the world. You are president of AIGA, the largest professional association for design in the world. You also have a young son and a husband and now have to navigate your work life with your family life. How has this transition gone for you? Any any tips for the women out there that are looking to better understand how they could live their full lives? Yeah, I wish I had like the sort of magic answer. I probably do a pretty good job at sort of acting like everything is like, <laughs> is great. It's hard. It's really hard. It's funny you're asking me this week of all weeks because this week I'm feeling like completely overwhelmed with all of it. But just even, I mean, in the history of Lippincott's been around since 1945, I'm the first senior partner woman to ever have a baby while being a senior partner. Um, wow. And it's not normal even at the company I'm at. So I've sort of been having to just kind of pioneer on my own and learn and um, and do things in the way that I, th- I think I should be doing as far as balancing. I'm pretty, again, I'm pretty lucky in that a lot of people gave Marissa Mayer a lot of criticism when she, because people said, well, you know, obviously you can do it because you're like so wealthy and you can have like a slew of like help and nannies and And obviously, I'm nowhere near that kind of a position. But I will say that, you know, having a baby when I'm already in a senior position, so I'm already calling the shots, I'm already, I can plan out when we're going to meet with clients and when the presentations are going to be and things like that. So I have a lot more control that a lot of women don't, especially at the ages when they're usually thinking about having kids. I had a baby very late in life and was just very lucky that I was able to being in my 40s. But it's been a challenge. You know, someone gave me some advice at one time about work-life balance isn't about doing everything perfectly all at the same time. Um, And I think that's what a lot of people think. It's like you're balancing everything and you're knocking it out of the park in every single thing you're doing. And so I just always have to think about prioritizing and think about and just actually letting it be okay that some days I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be an okay wife and you know, a good mom and a great employee. And the next day, that's going to change. I think once you sort of come to terms with that, and that's really hard for someone like me, who I am a bit of a perfectionist, and I feel like if I'm not knocking it out of the park every single thing I'm doing, I'm failing. But it's that's how I get through it, just kind of thinking about, like, for instance, when I was asked to be president a couple years ago, and at the time I was pregnant, And I just prioritized and said, you know what, I'm not going to be able to do that in the way that I want to do it. I was already on the board and I was like, 
that's enough right now. Being on the board is enough. I'm connected to the IGA. I'm still doing something that's important to me. But right now I'm going to try being a mother and I'm going to continue being a good partner to my partners and at Lippincott. And, um, you know, now that my son is older and I feel like he's more <laughs> self-sufficient at the age of two, because, you know, I was when I was two. Absolutely. <laughs> um, then I said, yeah, this is a good time to, I, I think I can do it now of, of being president. So for me, it's not necessarily about trade-offs because a lot of people will say, oh, is that, you mean trade-offs? And it's not about trade-offs. It's just more just being okay with everything's not going to be perfect at the same time. Sue, thank you so much for being on Design Matters and for really helping to forge new opportunities, new paths, new leadership for women in design and, and beyond. Thank you, Debbie. You can find out more about Sue Matthews Hale on the website of Lippincott, lippincott.com. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainy Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.